What's up, IDC? Everybody doing good? Okay, good. We got a lot of work to do this morning. Let's pray for God's help. Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for the church. Thank you for the word. Father, I pray that as a result of sitting under the preaching of your word, that we would love you more, that you would transform our lives. Lord, I pray that the sound of saving grace would indeed be sweet to us this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, let's have, we have a, a rich text before us this morning. Uh, if we have not met, my name is Daniel, and I get to serve as one of the lay pastors here at IDC. Uh, I've been serving as a pastor for about five years, and I just want to say it's, it is a real joy. Uh, to gather together with you guys week after week after week, sit under the preaching of the word, to sing together, to take the Lord's Supper together. And so I hope that uh, just, just the act of being here and doing the things that we do together is encouraging to you. Um, early on in my discipleship, I was given some, some good advice. And you may have heard this advice before. I don't really remember where it came from. Uh, but the advice is, in all of our devotion and Bible study, Never stray too far from the Gospels. And I appreciate the fact that, uh, whether intentional or not, we have kind of um, abided by that advice at IDC. This is, we have preached through the Gospel of Mark before, we've preached through the Gospel of John, and now for the last several weeks we have been preaching through the Gospel of Luke. And I think it's good for us that we never stray too far from the Gospels. Because the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the hinge point of the whole Bible. Oftentimes we know the stories of the Bible, but we may not know the story of the Bible. And perhaps one way to articulate that this whole book tells us one story is to say that the Bible is all about Jesus. The Old Testament anticipates Jesus, the Gospels announce Jesus, and then the rest of the New Testament applies Jesus and his work and his teaching and specifically his death and his resurrection. And so in some sense, because the Gospels announce Jesus, the message of the Gospel of Luke, week after week, is behold your king. The long-awaited Messiah is here. He is the promised one. Think of it. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. The heel that would crush the head of the serpent is leaving footprints in the dirt. The child that was promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, 17, the one in whom every nation on earth would be blessed is sleeping under the stars. The prophet like Moses from Deuteronomy 18 is now teaching in synagogues throughout Galilee and Samaria. The promised king in the line of David whose throne shall be established forever, 2 Samuel 7, is proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand. I'm going to keep going. The faithful shepherd of Ezekiel 34 is gathering God's people into one flock. And the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is on the scene, on his way to Calvary. And that's where we find the king. In Luke chapter 13, on his way to Jerusalem to establish his kingdom. This particular text, Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 21, affords us the opportunity to hold together in our minds two ideas, and it's very important for us to do this. The first is the compassion of Jesus. 
We see his compassion displayed in healing a disabled woman, and we see his compassion displayed in correcting a religious leader. And the second idea is the kingdom of God. We need to hold these two ideas together in our hearts and our minds, the compassion of Jesus and the kingdom of God, because I think it's actually spiritually dangerous for us to separate these two things. If we separate them, then we might misunderstand Christ, and we might misunderstand what we are to be doing as Christians. If we focus solely on the compassion of Jesus and we leave off the kingdom of God, then we may be tempted to strip away the power and the purpose of Jesus' compassion. And likewise, the reverse of that, if we focus solely on the kingdom of God and we leave off the compassion of Jesus, then it is possible for us to begin pursuing the kingdom in ways that Jesus never did. So we need to hold these two things together. And that's the big idea from our text this morning. It's simply this, that the compassion of Jesus manifests the kingdom of God. Indeed, Jesus shows us in our text this morning that, the compa- that compassion for the suffering is one of the defining characteristics of the kingdom of God. Now, in order for us to kind of tee this up, right? I went and played golf uh, earlier this week and just realizing that like, if you tee the ball up too high, you're gonna hit it and it's gonna go sky high. If you tee it too low, you're probably just gonna swing and miss. I'm gonna try to tee this up for us uh, and keep us all on the same page. So, so just as a matter for us to kind of level set, we need to ask the question, what is the kingdom of God? Books and books and books have been written to answer that question. And so there's no way that we can answer what is the kingdom of God uh, in our time together this morning. But we do need to kind of be on the same page so that we all understand what it is we're talking about when we, t- when we say kingdom of God. Some have said that the kingdom of God is synonymous with a, a geopolitical realm. That it may be the, maybe it's, the, kingdom of, maybe it's the, the country of Israel. And maybe it's America by extension of that. Others have said that the kingdom of God is synonymous with the people of God. It's the church. But I'm going to say no to both of those. And in an effort to be both clear and concise, this is what I'm going to say. This is, don't, don't take this so much as a definition, but maybe a description. The kingdom of God is not synonymous with a realm or a people, yet. Rather, it is about the rule and the reign of God's Son. I'll say it this way. God the Father is sovereign over all things. He has authority over all things. Like right now. Okay, if we disagree there, then none of the, none of the rest of this is going to make any sense. God the Father is sovereign over all things, and he has authority over all things. And because this is true, he is able by the power of his spirit to bring all things under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That is his commitment, that is the work that he is doing, that is what he is accomplishing now in the days in which we live. God the Father, who is sovereign over all things, by the power of his Spirit, is bringing all things underneath the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It's that process that both creates the people of God and will one day establish a realm that will include all of creation in a new heavens and a new earth. And that's what we look forward to, right? I think this is why, when we are reading the Gospels, what, the, what features so much in Jesus' teaching is the good news of the kingdom of God. 
And then you flip over a few pages and you begin to read the apostles and read their letters to the churches. And the message that they're proclaiming is, Jesus is Lord. I think these two are theologically parallel statements. We're saying the same thing when we say the kingdom of God is at hand and Jesus is Lord. That means the same thing. And so in our text, Jesus shows us that through his compassion for sufferers, Jesus is bringing the Lord, his lordship to bear on the lives of those he encounters in this little synagogue somewhere between Galilee and Jerusalem. And so I'm not going to try to accomplish a whole lot this morning. I just want us to, to look into the word of God and marvel at the compassion of Jesus. And having marveled at his compassion then to meditate on the kingdom of God. First, we see Jesus' compassion displayed in his healing of the disabled woman. We find Jesus teaching in a synagogue on the Sabbath. Uh oh. If you've been reading your Bibles along, uh, reading along in your Bibles in, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, you know that when you find Jesus teaching in a synagogue on the Sabbath, it's about to go down. It's a bit ominous. Luke chapter 6, Jesus proclaims that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, and then he proceeds to display his lordship by healing a man with a withered hand. And of course, that makes the religious leaders angry because he healed on the Sabbath. It happens again in Luke 13, which is our text this morning, and then again in Luke 14. But not in a synagogue, it actually happens at the home of a Pharisee. Interestingly enough, this is the last time that Luke would record Jesus teaching in a synagogue. The heat of the religious leader's hatred for Jesus has been climbing and the pot is now at full boil. And it seems that this encounter would be the tipping point. And we're about to find out why. Jesus is teaching and verse 11 says, Behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over. Some of your translations may say that she was bent double. Walking around, perhaps unnoticed by people. Surely they saw her physical condition. But Jesus perceives her spiritual condition. And we need to know that her condition was both spiritual and physical. Right? Jesus, Luke tells us that she had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. Down in verse 16, Jesus says that she had actually been bound by Satan for 18 years. I don't think this is so much a case of demon possession as it is spiritual oppression. Like no demon ever speaks. Jesus never rebukes a demon, which he does in other passages where he casts demons out of people. I don't think this woman is demon possessed, but I do think she is certainly spiritually oppressed. And that spiritual oppression had left her with some serious physical conditions, physical symptoms. You may remember that the author Luke was a doctor by trade and oftentimes uh, he includes more precise medical details than other gospel writers do. And that has led, over the years, doctors and medics to kind of have a field day trying to analyze and diagnose what are the, the actual, uh, what's the disease that Jesus is healing here? And so some have said that this woman probably had a case of ankylosing spondylitis. A-N-K-Y, don't worry about it. Uh, I don't know what that means, but I had to look it up, right? So the Mayo Clinic says it's an inflammatory disease that over time can cause bones in the spine to fuse. 
This fusing makes the spine less flexible and can result in a hunched posture. And if the ribs are affected, which it often, they often are, it can be difficult to even breathe deeply. Compare that with her response when Jesus heals her and she glorifies God. Most importantly, the Mayo Clinic says that there is no cure. They didn't reference Luke chapter 13 in their research. <laughs> this woman had real physical symptoms that were caused by spiritual oppression. And this shakes up our medically advanced Western worldview a bit, doesn't it? Ours is a worldview that often fails to consider the possibility that some physical conditions may not just be physical, but they may carry a spiritual quality as well. Of course, it would be foolish for us to think that spiritual oppression is behind all of our physical conditions, but I think it's just, it would be just as foolish for us to think that physical conditions cannot be caused by spiritual problems. I've learned this in my own life, right, dealing with anxiety, as I know many of you have. The Bible, first and foremost, treats anxiety as a spiritual problem, but it often leaves us with physical symptoms, headaches, high blood pressure, heaviness in the chest where it feels like you can't catch your breath. The reality is there are physical symptoms that are caused by spiritual oppression that shouldn't make us afraid of demonic activity, that shouldn't make us afraid of spiritual oppression, but it should make us aware of the reality. And being aware of it, we ought to be all the more prayerful. But I say all that to point out to you that this woman didn't just need a chiropractor. She didn't just need physical therapy. She also didn't just need religious therapy. She didn't need cliches or platitudes. This woman needed a miracle. And she shows up at this little synagogue, and Jesus Christ is the teacher. He sees the woman, and he calls her to himself. Now, that's, that's quite a thing to do when you see a disabled woman who cannot even stand up straight. Like, who among us would see this woman in a gathering of people and be like, uh, excuse me, ma'am, could, could you please stand up and come over here? She can't even stand up straight. It feels a bit cringy, doesn't it? Kind of like the, uh, those videos that you see of the coach that forgets that uh, the kid is blind and he goes in for the high five. You can't make that mistake. What are you doing, Jesus? She can barely even walk. This is not an oversight by Jesus. He knows that he is about to further establish his kingdom by liberating this woman from Satan's grasp. So he calls her over and he says, Woman, you are freed from your disability. Amen. He sees her. He calls her. He speaks to her. He lays his hands on her. And after 18 excruciating years of spiritual oppression and physical pain, Jesus speaks the words and immediately... She is made whole. There's no take two and call me in the morning. Amen. The bones in her back unfuse and Satan's power is put to flight and the woman stood up straight for the first, and for the first time in 18 years she got to look somebody eye to eye and it was Jesus Christ. Amen. Marvel at the compassion of Jesus. You think she glorified God? Those may be some of the most understated words in all the scriptures. One preacher said that in that moment, she must have been the most eloquent person in all the universe. 
Friends, are you not glad that the Bible does not hide stories of suffering? Oftentimes, people who suffer find themselves socially invisible. Sometimes outcast, but more often invisible. And that's because oftentimes, society is unwilling to be made uncomfortable or inconvenienced enough to show compassion to people who suffer. But God sees us in our suffering. The Lord Jesus sees us in our suffering, and he knows what it is like to suffer himself. So he can sympathize with us in our suffering. And even more than that, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, that God is doing something with our suffering. It's not that Jesus just says, oh man, I'm I'm sorry you're having such a hard time. For this light, momentary affliction that we experience in this world is doing something. What is it doing? It is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The Bible does not hide stories of suffering because we need to know that our suffering provides the context for divine compassion. Jesus loves the ones that the world often forgets. And as Jesus' people, shouldn't we do the same thing? So let me ask you, where are the poor and the needy? Where are the oppressed? Where are the sick and the afflicted? Because wherever they are, that's where we ought to be. That's where you should find Christians, ministering to their needs in the name of a compassionate king, and thereby displaying This is what the kingdom of God is like. There will be no suffering when the king returns. Jesus displays his compassion in healing the disabled woman, and he displays his compassion in his correction of the religious leader, Mr. Fussy Pants. (laughs) The ruler of the synagogue sees with his own eyes the compassion of Jesus to transform this woman's life, to rescue her from the bonds of Satan. And instead of being in awe of Jesus, he's angry at Jesus. He's indignant because in his mind, something unrighteous had just occurred. I'm going to spend a little bit of time here, and I'm going to put this guy on blast because we need to understand what's really going on in this man's heart. He was angry that Jesus had broken the Sabbath, but Jesus had not broken the Sabbath. Jesus had broken his own, this guy's religious customs. Can you imagine being so concerned with preserving your own notions of what the kingdom of God should be that you miss the reality that Jesus was proclaiming what the kingdom of God is actually like in showing compassion to a suffering woman? Jesus told us that this is what he would go about, this was what he would, he would be doing in his ministry. Go all the way back to Luke chapter 4. Jesus is in the synagogue, and they hand him the scroll of Isaiah, and he unfurls it to Isaiah 61, and he quotes, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to what? To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. What has he just done? 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Faith family, the kingdom of God is not preserved through making more laws. It is proclaimed through breaking chains. When you see people set free from years of addiction and depression by the power of Jesus, when you see God's people putting the compassion of Jesus on display to those who don't deserve it, when you see the gospel bearing fruit in people's lives, this has happened to us, that our hearts and our desires have changed and our plans and our priorities are reoriented towards glorifying God rather than satisfying self. That's the kingdom of God at work. And it happens because Jesus is a compassionate king. To this poor fellow, the kingdom of God was preserved by rule-keeping and rule-making. Keeping the rules was keeping close to God. Making other people keep the rules was keeping... And Jesus didn't fit within his notions of what the kingdom of God was to be. In his mind, he had separated the kingdom of God from the compassion of Jesus. And look where it left him. He failed to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ because he was blinded by his own legalism. And he betrayed himself. He showed that his heart was far more crooked than her back. You see, we need to understand that legalism is not a solution to the problem of evil out there. Legalism is a symptom of the problem of evil in here. And we need the compassion of Jesus, we need the grace of God to come down, oftentimes, and tear down our legalistic hearts and remind us that keeping the rules is not keeping close to God. God keeps us close to himself because he kept the rules for us. This man's legalism would have been a barrier to to the woman's freedom and not a conduit for it. She was bound by Satan, but he was shackled by his own unwillingness to love his neighbor and thereby show that he loved God. And so in his attempt to keep the law, he had broken all of it. And Jesus is going to restate his compassion in the way that he deals with this fellow. Notice in verse 15, who is it that addresses him? The Lord. This man is angry at Jesus, but he doesn't have the backbone to address him. But the Lord addresses him. Luke uses the post-resurrection title of Jesus. I think he gets excited. And he is reminded that the, the, the risen Savior of the church is the same Jesus that puts on this clinic of compassion. Jesus says, you hypocrites. You and all who think like you. He reveals to them that they are holding people to a higher standard of law-keeping that even they themselves are not willing to follow. Like, I can guarantee you, if the ruler of the synagogue had been bent double for 18 years under the bondage of Satan, he wouldn't have cared that it was the Sabbath. He would have said, come on, Jesus, I need that healing. Jesus exposes their hypocrisy with two questions. That's all it took. Two questions. Don't you show compassion to animals on the Sabbath? Like these animals, the the ox and the donkey, they can't untie themselves from the manger and lead themselves to water. 
You have to do for them what they can't do for themselves. And ought not this woman receive compassion on the Sabbath? This is a daughter of Abraham. She's one of the family. She's not one of your beasts of burden. So how much more should she receive compassion on the Sabbath? And I love that Jesus says, Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Jesus says it's not that she was, it's not that she was healed even though it was the Sabbath. She was healed because it was the Sabbath. On the seventh day, God rested from his work. And the fourth commandment out of the Ten Commandments is that we keep the Sabbath. That we keep it holy. That we reserve one day out of seven to rest and enjoy God's provision in life and to remember that we are dependent on him. The Sabbath was made for us to remember that God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And here was a woman who was helpless and hopeless. Here was a woman who, in, and who had endured 18 years worth of Sabbath days, helplessly and hopelessly shackled by Satan. And then Jesus sees her. He says, absolutely not. Not on my watch. Not in my kingdom. Now where I am, Satan has no power here. Apart from Jesus, this woman had no hope of ever being healed. Her healing was necessary on the Sabbath because Jesus helps those who cannot help themselves. And as one pastor has noted, this incidentally is why some of us in this room this morning are Christians and some of us are not. It's because a Christian is one who is willing to admit that apart from Christ, I am helpless and hopeless. If you're not a Christian, it's likely because you have never been willing to admit this or you've never actually realized it. This pastor said that Jesus comes in order to reach down and touch those who recognize their helplessness and their hopelessness. But everything in your life has been put together to this point to guard you against ever being helpless or hopeless. We have become self-help experts. And the reality is we may be helping ourselves to hell unless we are willing to admit that we stand before God in need of his grace and his mercy. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus put his compassion for you on display when he died on the cross. He took for sins. So then my question to you this morning is, are you willing to accept the grace of God? To marvel at the compassion of Jesus and say, that's what I need. What was the result of Jesus' compassion? Verse 17 says, As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all of the glorious things that were done by him. We marvel at the compassion of Jesus in this text. And that also gives us an opportunity to meditate on the kingdom of God. There's something about these events this encounter with the disabled woman and the religious ruler, the, the synagogue ruler, his adversaries being put to shame, the people rejoicing in the glorious things that he's doing. There's something about all of this that compels Jesus to teach about the kingdom of God. 
Now, verses 10 through 17 are unique to the Gospel of Luke, but verses 18 through 21, where Jesus gives us the analogies of the mustard seed and the leaven, those are also in Matthew and in Mark. And I just want to point out to you that, that I think that's actually why there's a heading, likely a heading break in your Bible. And there's, a, there's the heading, the mustard seed and the leaven is what mine says, before, between verses 17 and 18. Because if you're comparing the gospel accounts, it's helpful to know, okay, this is where Jesus talks about the mustard seed and the leaven. But in reading the gospel of Luke, the heading break doesn't quite do justice to the flow of the narrative. His adversaries are put to shame, all the people rejoice, and in 18, he said, therefore... There are a couple reasons why it makes sense for Jesus to teach about the kingdom of God on the heels of uh, displaying his compassion like this. One is because Jesus shows us what the kingdom of God is like, right? When he is compassionate towards sufferers and he heals people, he's showing us what the kingdom of God is like. And he actually raises the expectations for what the kingdom of God is going to be. So in the flow of the narrative, I think in a real sense, Jesus offers these parables as a way to say, You think you're rejoicing now? You think my adversaries have been put to shame now? Just you wait. What you just witnessed was a mustard seed. And there are far more glorious things to come. I want to give us two observations from these parables that Jesus teaches. First is that the kingdom of God starts out small and insignificant, but eventually it becomes expansive and influential. That's the point of both of the parables. It's the contrast between the beginning and the end. And Jesus makes the same point. What looks small and influential at the beginning will be grand and glorious and influential when it comes in its fulfillment. Jesus aims the analogy of the mustard seed at men, the the work that men would typically do in the first century, and he aims the, the analogy of the leaven to women and the work that women would typically do in the first century. That's because Jesus is a good teacher. Because he wants his teaching to connect with the experiences of those who are in his audience. And he says that just as with a mustard seed that is planted in the ground, it becomes a whole tree. So large, in fact, that the birds of the air can come and nest in its branches, which is maybe kind of an odd detail to include. Uh... He could have just said and, and made the point, mustard seed tree. I think he adds the details of the birds nesting in its branches as an Old Testament allusion to the universal scope of God's care and protection. In the final consummation of God's kingdom, people from all over the world, all kinds of people will come and find refuge in the kingdom of God. And we see what that looks like in Revelation chapter 7, right? A multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue gathered around the throne of Jesus, worshiping the Lamb. The Apostle John, in his seeing this revelation, that was not the first time. That was not a surprise. That's a thread that runs all the way throughout the Scriptures. So what starts out small will eventually be so expansive that it will encompass all kinds of people from all over the world. And the analogy of the leaven, of the leaven, that just a tiny bit of leaven can spread throughout the whole loaf, right? Three measures of flour. Some commentators said that's something like 50 pounds. That's a 50-pound dinner roll. <laughs> just a little bit of leaven permeates through 50 pounds of bread. 
what starts out as seemingly insignificant will influence everything. The kingdom of God will transform all of life. And it should be no surprise to you that what Jesus teaches in these parables becomes even clearer at the crucifixion and the resurrection of the king. Like one weekend 2,000 years ago, what seemed small and insignificant changed everything. At the very beginning of God's work of bringing all things underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ lies the death of Jesus on behalf of sinners. That's because the king must be crucified before he is crowned. The price must become before the prize. Jesus would be buried in the ground, much like this mustard seed, but the result of his burial would be resurrection and a kingdom in which all peoples come and find refuge. And that reality, the truth of the gospel, has determined the path of human history ever since. What seems small and insignificant and even foolish to some, God has made expansive and influential. So brothers and sisters, when it seems like kingdom work is progressing slowly, when it seems like God is not working in big ways, do not grow discouraged. His kingdom is guaranteed. And all of our compassion that we show to sufferers, all of our efforts that seem small and insignificant, those are just the things that God uses to accomplish His grand purposes. What starts out small and insignificant will eventually become expansive and influential. And the second observation is that the kingdom is both already and not yet. When Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead, he purchased an eternal kingdom. And that's a check that you can take to the bank. He died on the cross, he was buried in a tomb, he was raised from the dead, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And now all things are being brought under his rule and his reign. And we live between the times of his ascension and his return. Our sovereign God is at work reconciling all things to himself, making peace by the blood of the cross of Jesus. And so all of the benefits of God's righteous rule are ours now in Christ Jesus. You believe that? All of them. The kingdom is already here. But all things have not yet been submitted to his lordship, have they? We know this in our own lives. We have to continue to yield our lives to the lordship of Jesus. Like every temptation you face is an opportunity to say, Jesus is Lord. And every culture in the world in some way or another runs contrary to God's wise design. And so how is it that we as Christians should pursue the kingdom of God between both the inauguration and the consummation of God's kingdom? What ought we to be doing? We ought to bring the lordship of Christ to bear in all of life. We're going to wind down with this. We have to bring the lordship of Christ to bear in the church through discipleship. This is what we do week in and week out and in growth groups. We encourage one another in the faith. We hold one another accountable. It's all because Jesus is Lord. And that matters for us. And it matters for the way that we live as Christians. And we bring the Lordship of Christ to bear in the world through evangelism. We take the message that Jesus is Lord and that he is compassionate towards sufferers to those who have not heard that message yet 
or perhaps who have heard it and rejected it, you need to hear it again. This is good news. We bring the Lordship of Christ to bear in the culture through engagement. Jesus is Lord, and that determines the way that we ought to think about things like art and beauty and politics and recreation. And we bring the Lordship of Christ to bear in suffering through compassion, just the way that our Lord did. Because if all we do is build bigger buildings, nicer buildings, and pass better laws, then we have not fully displayed what the kingdom of God is like. We may not be able to perform miracles like Jesus, but we can certainly be compassionate towards those who suffer the way he was, and we can point people to Jesus and say that my compassion for you is showing you that this is what the Lord is like. This is what Jesus is like. He is compassionate towards those who suffer, and he can do far more for you than I can. Faith family, our king is compassionate towards those who suffer, and his kingdom is guaranteed, and that is good news. So, may we always keep these two realities together in our hearts and in our minds. Hold together the compassion of Jesus and the kingdom of God. And may God make us a people who pursue his kingdom by bringing the lordship of Christ to bear through compassion for the suffering. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there is no God besides you. There can be no God like you. You alone are compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We thank you for your word. Thank you that by it you reveal yourself to us. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who display both the compassion of Jesus and who proclaim the kingdom of God. I pray that we would even do that this week. Father, as we turn to the table now, I pray that we would see both the compassion of Jesus and the kingdom of God as we take the table together. Help us to worship you, to respond to your revelation with grateful hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.